Well, good morning once again. Um, we have a, uh, not a guest preacher, but one of our brothers, Christian Wall, who is one of our elder candidates. He's in training and qualification to be a pastor here. Uh, he's going to preach today from Colossians, uh, and uh, I'm very thankful for him, as you all ought to be. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? The preached Word today comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would do what you so mightily and happily love to do, which is to bring your word in power for salvation, for life, for transformation, and for your glory and for our joy. We pray that our hearts would receive this transformation, that your Holy Spirit would be here to give us wisdom and understanding uh, in a way that only you, God, can do from the very word the Holy Spirit has given to us. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Matt. All right. As Matt said, uh, my name is Christian Wall. I'm a deacon and an elder candidate here. And uh, I'm just, I'm happy to see you guys here this morning. I'm glad that you guys are, are here, uh, expectant, ready to hear the word of God. Um, so I'm going to do my best to faithfully uh, teach that. So, uh, as Matt also read, we're today in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And the sermon series that we're in on the book of Colossians, it's got a subtitle um, that I hope you don't overlook, Gospel Culture and Gospel Doctrine. We as Christians, when we pick up the Bible, uh, no matter what book we're in, no matter what season of our life we're in, uh, we should always uh, not just read through it and breeze through it like any novel, um, this is something that we want to use as a tool for our examination. The Bible itself says that it's, uh, it's like a two-edged sword uh, that divides the, the flesh and the bone. It's, it's a book that reads us as much as we read it, and it's something that we should allow to change our lives, our individual lives, but also our lives as a church. Uh, which brings me to that subtitle, Gospel Culture and Gospel Doctrine. In this... Uh, in this particular sermon series, Matt has read ahead of us and has uh, studied this book of Colossians, and I think he said he found 27 or something traits that, uh, that he's using as, as he reads it. He's evaluating himself, he's evaluating us as a church, and he's saying, we do that pretty well, we don't do that so well. Um, but these are the two areas that those kind of things should affect us. It should affect our gospel culture, what we do, how we act ourselves and how we act around one another, and it should also affect our doctrine, what we know, 
both of those things are important, and we can't neglect one or the other. Uh, God is not just a God of our minds, and we just keep it up here, and we never act on it. And he's also not a God of, oh, yeah, I'm just going to act. I'm never really going to think about it too hard. He's a God of both. He affects both, and this book affects both. Um, but those 27 points that I mentioned, Matt boiled them down neatly into five for us. Uh, these are a focus that we're starting with this sermon series, and we're carrying on uh, throughout our lives as a church and our individual lives. Those five points are, I know that you've heard them before. If you want to write them down again, sure, you'll find them because we find these very important. Uh, number one is we are devoted to scripture. Number two is we are devoted to gospel fluency. Number three, we are devoted to prayer. Number four, we love God and we love one another. Number five, we are devoted to joyful obedience. And you will see, as we study this book of Colossians and even the scripture that we're working on today, um, you'll see some of these in various forms popping up. Uh, so feel free to highlight them and, and remember them. Let these things affect you and let everything that we're about to read in the scripture also affect you and change you. Uh, some books of the Bible are easier than others to do this with. Um, Paul's writing is very dense and he really likes run-on sentences and it can be very confusing. Um, I myself need to grab a piece of paper and a pencil and kind of chart out everything that's actually being said. Um, and I know that's extra work, but it's worth it. It's worth it because applying this scripture to our lives and changing ourselves according to these scriptures is very important work that we do as Christians. It's important that we do that as a church. Um, let's just do it together. So we're gonna start with this next passage of Colossians that Matt read. And we're just gonna start in the very first verse. <clears throat> starting in verse 8. So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So that is uh, pretty clear for Paul's writing. Uh, that it, There's not a mystery there of what he possibly means. It's a warning. It's a warning to the church at Colossae. Um, don't be taken captive by outside philosophy. Philosophy according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. That word philosophy that he's saying there, uh, it's defined as a study of knowledge, a study of truth, the nature and the meaning of life. And that seems like it may mean different things for us today versus back in the time of the Colossian church. Uh, for the Colossians, the historical context for this statement is that uh, they have a lot of philosophy and cultural pressures uh, on them in the form of one being mystical polytheism and one being uh, pressure to observe the laws of the Torah uh, in their diet, in the sacred days, in circumcision, um, and you can read more about that in, Gal uh, in Galatians. Excuse me. But their church is made up of um, it's, a, it's a time in history that's, that's very unique because Judaism is fulfilled and becomes Christianity. So they have the difficult uh, work of figuring out which laws stay and which laws don't, um, how to become a Christian after having been, uh, been uh, Jewish, and 
They've also got this added difficulty of uh, Gentiles from outside the church are now inside the church. So the strange combination of uh, if you're a part of the Colossian church, you've lived your life outside, um, you've seen the pressures of these uh, polytheistic gods in the marketplace wanting you to worship, uh, worship money, worship sex, worship music, worship power, um, and you finally get to church, you finally get to your refuge and your place where you really belong, this place of encouragement, and then you just find more pressure, more pressure from, uh, from former Jews that are saying, no, you need to observe the diet, you need to keep these sacred days, this is important to us, but uh, Jesus has fulfilled those things, and I'm getting a lot, of, um, a lot of inside and outside voices, pressures and influences that are trying to, to sway me, and I'm trying to make sense of it all. Um, and that can sound a bit like what we're dealing with today. Our situation is not as unique as theirs. We are not the first century church. Um, but some of those problems do sound like us. We do have a lot of cultural pressure coming from all directions, not just outside the church, but even inside the church. And I hope that we would take a bit of comfort from that. Uh, philosophy really is everywhere. It's Primarily in the college classroom, um, I didn't take a philosophy class when I was in college, but I, I know that that's, you know, that's, that's where we'll most often encounter it in its purest form with all the fully defined terms and the textbooks and everything. Um, but that's not how a lot of us will encounter it. Philosophy is actually something that everybody has, even if you don't know the dead guy that it's named after, even if you can't like write it down exactly. Philosophy really is something that everyone has. In every book that we read, there's a philosophy. In every movie that we watch, there's a philosophy. Every TV show and every podcast, our friends have philosophies, and some of them are different from ours. And our mentors do, and our bosses do, and everyone really does have a philosophy, and they all influence us to different degrees, in a positive way or in a negative way. And I want us to consider where those loudest voices are coming from because I know some of us can tend to float and uh, not examine the philosophy that we uh, adhere to. We just, we just act and assume that there's no philosophy behind it, but there really is, uh, and it's, it's worth looking into. So comparing us to the Colossians one more time, um, even though we have very advanced communication and I've got the world in my pocket, uh, it's, the problem really is still the same. Um, even though those influences can reach me a lot more closely than they could for the Colossians, these competing voices of philosophy inside and outside the church trying to captivate us is not the new problem that we think it is. It is a very old problem. And I hope that we can be encouraged by that because God has some encouragement and instruction for us on this particular problem. So before I go any further, I want to take a deep breath and... and, uh, and Thank God for that, um, that he does not leave us alone, that he has wisdom to give, that he has his law to give, and that he doesn't leave us all by ourselves to try to figure out this world all on our own. So let's pray before we move on. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your law. We thank you that you didn't just save us and send us off into the world to just try to figure it out on our own. Um, you have given us wisdom and, and law to follow. Uh, you guide us 
uh, if we seek you out in prayer, if we seek out your scripture, you have guidance to give us. So Lord God, I pray that we would seek it uh, because it'll find us one way or the other. Um, but Lord, give us wisdom as we, as we go through this and, and continue to lead us and guide us in our lives. Uh, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, do not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Don't be taken captive by the world. Why? Why should we not be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the spirit of the world? Next verse, verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That seems like a strange turn. Um, normally, when I hear people debate philosophy, it sounds like a showdown of facts and logic, and it does not sound like this, because Jesus is God, right? But that makes absolute sense. What Paul is trying to say here is he's trying to ask us to consider the author of the wisdom or the philosophy that is trying to take us captive, whether or not to, uh, to accept it and let it influence us. We just have to begin by asking one question, who is the author? Is it Jesus, right? For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So there is a person behind all of the worldly wisdom that we consume, and even though sometimes they can be right, they're not God though. They are not God. Now he doesn't say, I'm, I'm trying to put as many asterisks on this as I can to be perfectly clear, he's not saying that all the wisdom of the world is always wrong and to just close your ears to it, don't listen to it, leave it out. He's not saying to do that. Because there are things that are true that are not written in the Bible. And we have to live in the world. Like, this is, this is where we live. This is our home. Um, he also does not say, do not listen to philosophy. Don't engage with it. It, it can exist over there, but I'm just going to keep myself kind of quarantined from it and, and, and not let it influence me, not ever maybe study it or try to apply some of it. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't be taken captive by it or don't be captivated by it. Don't allow it to control you more so than God, right? So we don't get off easy. This, there is still work to do. We have to be careful and we have to be discerning with everything that we take in because sometimes the wisdom of the world makes a lot of sense and we need it and it's good. Um, whether it's the wisdom of uh, Bob Ross, Bob Ross is great, he hasn't led me wrong before, or Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, he's a great guy. I love his views on conservationism. He is undoubtedly a great man. Um, or Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I love that man. Uh, he is undeniably great. He hit, uh, in preparation for this sermon, for some reason, I watched his, uh, his testimony before Congress in the 60s and um, his acceptance speech at the Television Hall of Fame. It'll make you cry. He's great. Um, and even in the comments of those videos, there were people that were saying, oh, like, not very many, but some people saying, like, oh, this is what Jesus would have been like. This is, this is the embodiment of, of who Jesus wanted us to be or something like that. Or this is, this is like the image of Jesus. But, but man, is that all that Jesus is? Fred Rogers is great. But he's not Jesus. He's not God. And, and that's exactly what this is saying. It's saying, sure, 
take Fred Rogers' guidance and his wisdom, be a good neighbor, um, but he is not the fullness of deity who dwells bodily, right? And I'm not going to, in this, uh, in this sermon, I'm not going to confront every single philosophy in the world. It would take too much time, um, and that's not what Paul's doing here. Uh, what he's trying to do is differentiate the whole lump of worldly philosophy away from why we go with Jesus, why we follow Jesus primarily, okay? So, in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Let's pick this apart real quick. In him, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus, right? In him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And Paul goes on in verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So this is, these are, this is poetic, metaphorical language about our relationship and our place to him. So we're not in him like, a, like water is in a cup. Uh, it's, it's not a geographic location. In him is like closing your eyes and, and recognizing that his power and influence fills you and, and changes you. Uh, in him, you have, been, you have been filled, who is the head of all rule and authority. So let's pick this apart a little more. So in him, the whole fullness of deity, who is that? The fullness of deity is God the Father. Dwells bodily, that's God the Son, and you have been filled in him, the head of all rule and authority. That is God the Holy Spirit, as in the same spirit that purifies and empowers Christ himself and raised him from the dead. It's pointing out that that same spirit also dwells in you. The whole fullness of the Trinity is present here in this scripture. So this is not a mere man that we're following, not a mere person, Jesus, that we're following. We're following the fullness of God. Not to say that, you know, any one part of the Trinity, I, I can't do this part of theology right now in the middle, uh, but uh, no one part of the Trinity is any more or less God than the other parts of the Trinity. It is a mystery, it seems like a paradox, but it is not. Uh, the whole fullness of the Trinity is right here in the scripture. That is who we follow, not mere men, we're following God. And there is no better answer for why we follow Jesus. This is the best answer. We must defer to God because he's God. He is the head of all rule and authority. I was also reading C.S. Lewis prepping for this, uh, and he has an essay called The Poison of Subjectivism. Uh, he lived in a very unique time uh, with all these confronting ideas of, of fascism in the world. And I wanna be able to talk about this for, for hours, but, but I'm not going to. There's one quote from him it says that unless the measuring rod is independent of the things being measured, we can do no measuring. It is a good essay. He brings up a lot of very good points about why it's dangerous to have thought leaders in the world uh, that are just men, and I recommend that you read it. But again, none of his points are as important as this one. It's because he's God. We follow God because he's God. So that's my first point. Follow God because he's God. I want this to be our first principle to help us navigate the whole world of competing philosophy. Is it God that said this? Okay. So, now that we're talking about just us and God, and we're talking about our philosophy as Christians, let's look at the next verse and talk about how God precisely influences us. <clears throat> How does God influence us? Starting in verse 10, backtracking a little bit. 
And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So I'm not going to go into detail about circumcision here. If you would like to know more, please go ask your parents. Uh, but I am going to talk about what it means, because that's what Paul's doing. He's not talking about the literal thing. He's talking about the symbolic nature of the sacrament of circumcision. And Paul's pretty clear about it here, too. Circumcision in the Bible was never just a physical act. Never just a physical act. It was a sacrament that we no longer have to do that was a symbol of consecration to God being marked and being set apart. It's something that set his people apart specifically. The Bible uses that phrase a lot, circumcision without hands or circumcision in our hearts. I will run through a couple scriptures now. 1 Corinthians 7, all of Galatians, uh, Ezekiel 44, I saw that language, Acts chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 9, there's a mix of Old and New Testament language there, so this is older than uh, Jesus' advent. Um, this has always been the case. Um, for instance, in Hebrews, uh, it, it points out that Abraham was saved by faith before any other works. And now I'm getting into the last sermon that I preached. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's never... It's never just a physical act, of course. It is always also symbolic that it talks about a circumcision in our flesh and in our hearts, that it's a two-part thing, and now we are in the symbolic nature of it. So it says here in verses 11 and 12, it's showing that when we were joined to Christ, there's a metaphorical death that takes place, right? We don't actually die. We metaphorically die, and there's also a rebirth, and as Jesus explained to Nicodemus, it's not a real rebirth, it is a symbolic rebirth, being born again. We put off, as Christians, when we are saved, we put off the old, the old self, the old flesh, the old habits, the old preferences, we put it all away, we die to the old man, and we put on the new man that is being raised through faith in the powerful working of God. Jesus came to give us an example and the power to be a new kind of human, a new humanity, right? And this is not something that the laws of the Torah can do. I went a little light on that point in this sermon, but if you read there when it's talking about, let me look at the first verse again, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and envy deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world, talking a lot about the elemental spirits of the world and secular gods, and we're not talking as much about the human tradition portion, about the law not being what gives us salvation, that Jesus is what gives us salvation, right? But this kind of change, this rebirth, this death and rebirth being born again is not something that following a set of laws in the Torah can do, and that is why Jesus is saying, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am the way that salvation comes to man, not through the Torah, but through me. So this pressure that the Colossians are facing inside the church regarding the law, God is showing that freedom and salvation never came through the law alone, 
but through the resurrection power of Jesus, right? So God's influence on us. Let's, let's look more at that. God does not just have good advice for your life. He does not have just nice wisdom for you to borrow and to consider, and he doesn't just have the best set of laws for you to adhere to, although he does have those. They are in your Bible right now. He does give us those. But God's plan for your life, as spelled out in these verses, is that he does not intend to make you different, but he intends to make you new, brand new. God does not intend to just make you a little different. He intends to make you new. Now, this might sound drastic. Uh, We might think to ourselves, there's nothing wrong with advice. There's nothing wrong with law. As a matter of fact, that's all I need right now. I just need a little bit of wisdom to kind of nudge me in the right direction. I need a little bit of law to get me back on track and centered, right? I might think, I, I might think that I'm pretty perfect sometimes and that I don't want to tear down all this really great work that I've done. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of talking about this moment when we're saved, right? This moment that this intense life change happens and we are born again as Christians. Um, but I'm also talking about the day-to-day for us because that kind of that worldliness can build up on us and not make us lose our salvation, but make us trust in other things for our salvation other than Jesus, right? But again, Jesus does not intend to just make you different. He wants to make you new. And we might think, you want me to start over? You want me to tear down all this really great work that I have built up for me? Great work that I have worked very hard progress that I've made as a person, I'm supposed to tear all that down and instead put on this new self, this new flesh, be born again in your image. That seems drastic. But it's not drastic to God because he understands the urgency of his plan. He sees the fullness of his plan for history and he doesn't have any place for someone to have a little building of their own that all of this is supposed to be remade in his image. And in order to understand why his plan goes so far, we're going to skip ahead. We'll skip ahead to Colossians chapter 3. And I'm only going to read one verse. But in this section of scripture, Paul is talking to the Colossians about all of the, just example after example, of awful human behaviors that he knows that they're engaging in and knows that the world is engaging in, and he wants to warn them regarding their their actual behavior in the world. And so after this long list of put this to death in you, put this to death in you, don't do this, uh, please change your behavior, he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. On account of your sin and my sin, the wrath of God is coming. If we ignore that point, then that really levels the playing field. And all philosophy is kind of equal then, right? You can pick and choose then. If we ignore this point here, everything else becomes plausible. If, that's, if this world is all that there is, and there's no consequences at the end, and, <clears throat> excuse me, and life means whatever you want it to mean, there's no consequences and there's no absolute truth, then any philosophy is fine. And it's really just up to you. It's just a buffet. But because of this verse, we recognize that salvation from God is our greatest need. That God, who is all goodness and all grace and all satisfaction and all belonging, 
recognizing that there's a divide between him and us, a, an in, impassable divide between us, and his wrath is coming, we need only his truth that no other philosophy will do, right? Now, the world will try to lower our, uh, what's the word, expectations. Uh, he, they will try to bring us down and tell us that we have other bigger problems than the salvation of our soul and the wrath of God that's on our way, on its way. Uh, because in this life, we do, all of us, we desire peace and we desire uh, belonging. We want to belong. We want to be satisfied. We want satisfaction. And we do get those things. We get a small taste of those things now uh, because of the common grace of God. God's common grace on us allows us to have all those wonderful, beautiful things in this life. Um, but we're never fully satisfied. No, no one meal can satisfy us forever. No one good friendship will satisfy us forever and it'll never go sour. Um, because in this life, we're subjected to futility. And the world's response to that is, that's just how it is. Life is made of dark and light. Uh, the, the sadness in life can sweeten the good, and, and that's it. And, and you know, we, we can't really wish for, for better than that. We'll try to find our happiness here, or it'll make jokes about it. That, oh, you know, life is terrible. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I, work, is, work is awful. Uh, marriage is hard, and, and, you know, poke jokes at it and just, and, and never wish for anything better. Never wish that it would be anything more than it is. That's all I ever see on Facebook, or all that I ever see on uh, TikTok, or any YouTube talking heads, or any podcasts or bloggers. They all have trouble with that, that point of futility, right? The point that we aren't going to get lasting happiness here. And they'll try to lower our expectations. They'll try to get us to settle and tell us that we can find our happiness here. And then they'll tell us to like and subscribe or buy their book or buy their product or their nutraceuticals or whatever thing they're selling or get to come to their seminar all so that they can let us down again. Okay? God is what we truly desire. We will experience in this life sin. That's our other big problem. I can't, I can't get to the happiness, and also I'm dealing in the moment with all this guilt. I'm racked with guilt of all the people that I've hurt in my life, and I try to put it out of my mind and not think about it. But we experience sin and cruelty, and even through the course of the sermon, I've forgotten that there's a war going on right now. People are being hurt, and I'm just happy it's not me. We're experiencing injustice. We're experiencing inequality. And all the philosophies of the world answer that problem by trying to sell us another solution or campaigning for donations or uh, trying to sell us on a justice that really just ends up creating new oppressors. Take this guy out of power so that now I can be in power, right? Or they'll point the finger at the other guy. Even though they're not in power yet, they can still say, you're the problem. You're, you're what needs to be replaced. You're what needs to be fixed. Or they'll tell us that it's just the present age that's the problem, and that if we just went back, went back to the 50s, or went back to the 20s or something, that that's, that's where it really was good. But they won't tell us that the problem is really me, that I'm a part of the problem, that you're a part of the problem, that what's contributing to that sin and cruelty and injustice is you and your actions, 
And if they do have the guts to say that and, and hurt you in that way, uh, they don't have the power or authority to forgive you or to actually deal with the insecurity and guilt that you feel. And even though I want really badly to pray for justice to come, God, please bring wrath on the, un, on the unrighteous, like, God, please come and deal with this, deal with this fully and finally now. Um, there's a little bit of doubt in the back of my mind that, you know, that, that includes me. Kill all the sinners, God. I'm a sinner. That's me. I can't stand on the day of God's wrath, right? And while the world cannot answer that problem, the world can't do anything to help us with that, God can. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And that sounds like a threat because we haven't gotten to the good part yet, right? But he is. He has promised us that even though this verse says on account of these, the wrath, is God, the wrath of God is coming, John 3, 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So now I have good news instead of this awful news that the wrath of God is coming because of my sin. Now I have hope. Now I know that I can have salvation, that I can be saved. It gets better. Um, but to, to finish this comparison between the world's philosophy and God's plan, again, he's not showing up with good advice. He brings salvation that we really needed. And he has not just come to heal our country and not just come to heal your marriage or to make you healthier or to help you exercise more or go on that vacation that you always wanted to go on, fix your, fix your finances. He has come to save your soul. He can still do all those other things, but that's not the main reason he came. He came to save your soul and make you new. He does not intend to make you feel better about your guilt that you feel, but to erase it. Okay, let's, let's look at exactly how he does that. Okay, let's look at verse 13. See, what is God's plan to make me new? Verse 13, and you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, have, <clears throat> having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. We know where we are. We know that it feels like death, the, the futility that we live under sometimes and the guilt that we live under. And while we were dead, he made us alive in a way that no worldly philosophy can. We stood rightfully accused of our sin and our shame. And what does God do? He forgives us. We did not belong in his presence. We did not belong with God. But now we've been buried with him and raised with him. And now we're alive together with him. He is not a God that demands that we come to him. He comes to us. That divide that stood between us we can't reach over, he reached over. He is the one that has been buried, raised, and has made us alive together with him. We were in debt. 
this backlog of sin behind us that we can't drag over the divide with us, we're in debt in that, deeper than we could ever repay. And that debt is not just a number on a paper that we can throw away. That debt carries with it legal demands. Legal demands. Justice must be done or else God is not just. Right? But what does God do? He cancels it. Cancels it. But that doesn't sound like justice. How does he cancel it? By nailing it through his own son's hands. That's how much God loves us. That's the plan of God. That's something, again, no worldly philosophy can do. These rulers and authorities that are spoken of here in verse 15 might be confused by that term. Is he talking about our, our, our president or Congress or something? He's not. Uh, he's used this term before in Ephesians 3.10, 1 Peter 3.22. These are forces of spiritual darkness. He's talking about Satan, sin, and demons. Satan... Uh, a little research, Satan is not actually a proper title or name. Uh, it is a generic common noun in Hebrew. It means accuser. It means adversary. Um, it sometimes pronounces the Satan, the accuser or the adversary, and it's derived from a verb, which means to obstruct or to oppose, right? So this ruler and authority, what threat does he have exactly? Because I thought God was sovereign. What what threat does he have? Um, I thought he was under God's control. The threat he has is that he doesn't have to lie about us, right? He doesn't have to lie about us when he says that we do not belong in God's presence. He's absolutely right. He's telling the truth. However, as we just read, what has God done to these rulers and authorities? He disarms them. They have no teeth anymore. He puts them to open shame and triumphs over them. This is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel, the gospel to us, the gospel to the world. God has done what the law and no philosopher and no influencer and no thought leader could do. He's done what all of them could not do by fully and finally dealing with our sin. So now we belong with him. So don't let anyone call you unrighteous. Your sin is still real. It's still real and it still has consequences, but don't let anyone call you unrighteous before God because Christ has died for you. Because the record of death that stood against you with its legal demands is nailed through his hands in his crucifixion and death. So don't let anyone say that you're the same old person that you were. Even though you look the same, don't even have to get a haircut, you're still exactly the same person before, but you're not. You are not the same old person that you used to be before the salvation of God came to you because Christ has made you new. And when the world tries to stir us up into the latest controversy and tries to tell us that they've got a new solution and they've got a new plan, uh, don't settle. Don't settle for the peace and the justice that they're promising. Sure, help. Seek the good of the city into which I sent you, uh, Jeremiah, all of that stuff. We absolutely should be a, a real part of helping progress in this world. But don't settle for that finally. That peace and justice is not it. Remember, the greater cause that is more worthy of our time and our energy is the cause of Christ. And that's just us individually. When we talk about our neighbors and we talk about witnessing and evangelism and bringing our testimony to the people of this world... We have people over for dinner and we start to tell them about Jesus. Uh, don't waste time trying to change the fruit that they bear 
when God's plan is to make them new. Don't, don't be a, a tool of the philosophy of this world just trying to change them a little bit, right? Don't try to make them a little bit different when God intends to make them new. Because it would be great if I bring my friend into the church and, and he starts to walk and act like a Christian and do Christian-y things. I might think, yeah, we're making some progress. But his sin's not dealt with yet. He hasn't repented, and he is not a new creation yet. He might walk and act like us, but he's not new yet, and that wrath will still fall on him. Okay? So, priorities. We want to handle the most immediate need the most immediate need is repentance, the forgiveness of sins, and everything else can wait. When we try to bring our friends into this, into this congregation and we try to uh, bring them into the kingdom of God, uh, we do not want to, to be like the philosophies of the world that just try to make it a little bit different and don't try to make them brand new the way that only God can. Okay. So, uh, lastly, when we're talking about us... Um, and we're trying to navigate this world of philosophy around us. Uh, this is what I wanted to spend the whole hour talking about, um, and I'm only going to talk about it for half a second. Um, when we encounter the, philosophy, this is, uh, the philosophies of this world, we need to go back to Scripture with them. Okay? So whatever movie or book or TV show that we watch, uh, pay attention, and then go read the Bible about it. Uh, as Charles Spurgeon said, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. I really like that quote. That's a very good uh, uh, guide, guiding principle. Um, but wisdom in the Bible, I've found um, that every philosophy that I encounter in the world around me can really be answered in the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Those are called the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Uh, Please go read them. Sometimes I'll just put on Proverbs when I'm woodworking or something so that I can kind of zone out and, and zone back in uh, for particular points. But it's, it's shaped my philosophy and shown me that there's all the stuff that people are saying out there in the rest of the world is kind of regurgitated real truth that comes only from God. And the same with Ecclesiastes and Job. But they all go together and they answer one another in this complex interplay of these three books Proverbs does not have the same tone as Ecclesiastes. They're very different. But then the philosophy of the world is different and life is different. We should use these books to help guide and examine the world around us. But lastly, please find the shortcomings of the philosophies of this world. See their shortcomings. See that they don't solve your greatest problem. See that they don't solve the greatest problem of our salvation before God. That is something that only God can do. And when we're trying to bring that solution to other people that desperately need it, don't sell them short and say, this will be enough. Just fix your marriage and, and don't have premarital sex and don't do drugs. Go further. All the way, become a new person. Become new in God. Be buried with him. Be raised with him. Come to our church and get baptized just another sacrament to symbolize this change that God has done. And, and, and let your guilt, let your shame, let the record of debt with its legal demands, your legal demands, be nailed through the palms of Jesus. Which I think is a good segue into communion. So let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for saving us.
I pray that in this church, people that have been subjected only to the philosophy of this world and have been steeped in it and know all about it, um, I pray that they'd come in here and they would hear something new, something totally new, something totally revolutionary that really does satisfy, that really does overcome the futility that we experience, that really does deal with the sin and the guilt that we drag along with us in this life. I pray they'd find the answer here. I pray we find the answer here in you, in you alone. And God, I just can't wait for the day when you really do come and deal with it all. I can't wait for the day that I'm in your presence, inquiring in your house. I can't wait. It sounds pretty good. So, Lord, we thank you. Thank you for everything that we've done, everything you've done in our lives. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.